So grab your Bibles. We're going to study God's Word together. It's an important text of Scripture and one I think that we all need. Turn, if you would, to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, that's not where we're going to settle, but that's where we're going to start. Uh, first, let's pray. Let's pray together, then we'll get into this a very important topic. Pray with me, please. God, we ask for your wisdom to be given to us as we study your word. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see the truth that you have to communicate to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think back to the last time you saw a armored vehicle with um, guys coming out of the front of some retail establishment with those bags of money in their hands, with guns strapped to their hips, looking around carefully, very vigilant, about trying to transport this money because if they weren't vigilant and if they didn't have guns and if they put it into a Volkswagen bug and not an armored vehicle, they would risk the threat of people getting it, seizing it, grabbing it because people want money. Uh, they really want money and they will do uh, whatever it takes to get it. And if they're unscrupulous, they're certainly going to find ways to steal it from you if you let your guard down. The Bible says there's something far, far more valuable than money or things that money can buy. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 11 says it's um, to be valued far above jewels. It's to be valued more than anything you can desire here on this earth. It really is a key fundamental part of the Christian life that all of us should be pursuing and we ought to make it our heart's desire to gather more of it. In a word, it is wisdom. God wants us to have it. God is the, uh, is the embodiment of it. In Christ we see wisdom on display and we are to want this, desire it, and to go after it, to sell all we have to, to acquire it. Matter of fact, in the next chapter in Proverbs chapter 9, it says the problem with people and wisdom is that it is crying out for someone just to take it. It's there for the taking. Uh, wisdom is personified in Proverbs 9 in sending out the maidens to see if they can get more people just to get interested in taking some of it. Uh, but instead, they're chasing things that really don't matter. We need to be all about wisdom. And I know that we can think, well, those are those you know, non-Christians out there, they're just so dumb, they're not looking at the truths of Scripture, they don't care about theology or God. But that's why I wanted you to turn to 1 Corinthians. I want to remind you from chapter 3 that we are, as people of God, probably exhorted uh, more fundamentally than any other group of people to make sure that we are not just acquiring knowledge, but that we are gathering true wisdom. Wisdom, by the way, just by way of definition, is something that relates to the application of knowledge. It's the skill of living life. It's the ability to make wise and appropriate choices. It's the right way to go about doing what you do. It is conduct that is what it ought to be. It's the way that God designed life to be lived. That's wisdom. And here is Paul saying to this church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, take a look at this in verse number 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, I mean, if you are just reflecting what the world calls wisdom, worldly wisdom, that's false wisdom, it says then let him become a fool that he may become wise. We need to realize that we have to recognize the departure from this world and the way it thinks, the way it operates, so that we might be able to be the kinds of people that God would have us be reflecting the attributes of divine and eternal wisdom that is bound up in God and displayed so clearly in Christ. Now look here at the beginning of this chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, he says that 
he couldn't even address these Christians in Corinth as spiritual people, as mature people, as people that were in sync and in connection with the God that they say that they love and worship. But instead, as people of the flesh, which is an idiomatic way of saying people that just are like everyone else. They're just normal and human people. Uh, they're not spiritually in tune. They're not godly people. He says, I fed you with milk and not solid food, verse 2, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you were still of the flesh. For while there is, now he starts to describe all these people that have all this knowledge that were taught, all this biblical truth. He says, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? He talks so much about wisdom in the first chapter, recognizing that we are in need of understanding it and having it defined and living it out. And he cries out to the church and says, you need to know what it is. And you need to acquire it. And you know that if you have the symptoms of things like strife and jealousy, then you don't have it. Whatever you've got, it is not divine wisdom. It's unfortunately just a reflection of human wisdom, which is characterized, by the way, by all of those things and many more that we're going to look at here today, and that is the strife and jealousy among human relationships. So take a look at the passage that we're going to settle into now. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18, the bottom of this chapter. You might remember this is the famous chapter in Scripture regarding the use of our mouths, our tongue, started with a Reminder that we should not aspire to be teachers, at least we should not be quick to aspire to be teachers because we're going to incur a stricter judgment than this great, long, lengthy, and just stinging indictment about the problem of our mouth and how it is so easily uh, utilized for foolish things, for destructive things. And then he gets into, okay, you guys, who is wise and understanding among you? Come on, if you think you're wise, it ought to look like this and not that. So let's pick this passage up. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, I'll read it for you here. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? I mean, who, who would that be? Well, then by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. For if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth, because that's certainly not biblical wisdom. Now, that's not the wisdom that comes down from above, verse 15. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, well, then there's disorder and every vile practice. There will be disorder in every vile practice if that's what you see. The characteristic of the worldly kind of wisdom that results in what we saw in 1 Corinthians, jealousy, selfish ambition, rivalry, dissension. The wisdom that's from above, look at verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere. Verse 18, and a harvest, it says, of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let me give you five things for us to consider here today, beginning in verse number 13, just the first half, the rhetorical question, who is wise and understanding among you? A lot of people like to assume that they are. Certainly that's why they aspire to be teachers. And even if you don't want to be a formal teacher behind a lectern somewhere, uh, you want people to agree with you. We want to be persuasive. We'd like to be influencers. We'd like to have people see it our way. And so he's saying, let's just think about your wisdom and what kind of wisdom you have. And I thought it'd be good for us just to start by asking ourselves that question. So in verse 13, first half, 13a, jot this down. I want you to ask yourself if you are wise. I mean, you hear this question and you can see it 
cast out to the whole congregation there. Who is wise and understanding among you, right? And you don't picture, certainly in our day, anybody going, oh, me, 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 that's me. And yet how often in our hearts that is our thought. We like to think that we are wise. As a matter of fact, look at any survey, uh, whether it's informal or some psychological uh, study that's published in a journal. When you start asking people, where do you stand in the pecking order? Where do you rate yourself in terms of something good versus something bad. Everyone's going to see themselves as good, whether it's uh, my personality, easy to get along with, a good driver, smart, insightful, understanding people well. You say, well, where are you in the spectrum of either I'm really good at that or I'm not good at that? Well, you would think then if people could think accurately about themselves and 50% of the people would say, well, I'm in the bottom half, but that's never the case. That is never the case. The majority of people think they're in the top 10% of whatever the good thing might be. I mean, you can look across the board, it depends on what the question is, but always overestimating who they are in, comparing, uh, in comparison to other people. And this question, who is wise and understanding among you? I'd like to think, that we uh, fall into, I don't like to think, as a matter of fact, I, I would not like to think, but I know it's true that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, which by the way is what Romans chapter 12 verse 3 says we should not do. Uh, he says you should not think of yourself more highly as you ought, but you ought to think as to have sober judgment, sound judgment. You should carefully be able to consider who you are in light of the big picture. Because knowing our tendency for us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, in particular, our knowledge, our insight, our wisdom, the ability and skill of living life, we need to understand that that is a tendency. And so we need to think very carefully about who we are. We need to stop and ask ourselves, listen, am I wise? What does that look like? How wise am I? Even asking the question and expecting an answer, which I'd really like for you to think through. It gets us to stop for a second and go, okay, maybe I do have an overly high view of my own insight. Maybe I have an inflated view of my own wisdom. Uh, Peter, when he was comparing himself to the other disciples, said in Matthew 26, 33, though all the others fall away, I will never fall away which is just the standard basic human reaction to people looking at themselves in terms of whatever it might be and saying, well, listen, I'm a cut above. I'm better in terms of my devotion or my thoughtfulness or my dedication. Uh, I just think we all are in that category and we need to stop and think so as to have sound judgment. Don't think more highly of your intelligence. Don't think more highly of your insight. Don't think more highly of your ability and skill of living life than you ought to think. Uh, let us humbly approach even our own self-assessment. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 is up there on his uh, veranda of his palace and he says, Is this not the great Babylon which I built by my mighty power, a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Now he'd been warned about pride. He'd been warned about thinking more of himself than he ought to. And the Bible says, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Even if you were to honestly think, well, to have sound judgment is not to think I'm an idiot. I don't think I'm, I'm a fool. Um, 
we need to know whatever wisdom we might have, whatever skill of living life we might have, whatever comparison we might make and think, well, I really have made some progress compared to other people. Now, all of that is something that is given to us. It is granted to us. It's like Herod in Acts chapter 12, and, and they, he gives this speech, verse 21. He sits his, on this royal throne with his royal robes, and he gives this oration to the people, and it says in verse number 22, the people go, yay, bravo, this is the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately, verse 23, the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That was the end of King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, in this passage. Not Herod Agrippa II, he comes later in the book called Agrippa. But here's Herod Agrippa I, and he is struck down in his pride because he does not give glory to God. Uh, we should be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I am what I am because of God's grace. And anything that I might have in terms of wisdom or insight or knowledge or understanding or skill in living life or a track record that shows a good trajectory of your spiritual life, we need to sit back and say it is all a gift. It's all granted to us. And in Corinth, they certainly needed that. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, who, who, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you have not received? Even if there is some kind of comparison, you think, well, look at this. Uh, it's better. Right? It is more insightful. I've got something to say, and people should listen to me. He said, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you've received it, then why do you boast as if you had not received it? We can think we're so inherently smart, so inherently insightful, and we need to stop and recognize all of this is a gracious gift. The passage I quoted there earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, even Paul, who had all of this wisdom from God, he said, I am what I am, and that grace toward me was not in vain. I was someone who tried to be a good steward of what God gave me, but it was always with the kind of humility that is here depicted in James chapter 3. So I just wanted to start with that first question, who is wise and understanding among you? And I want you to ask the question, not as you would answer it, you know, in a, in a group with, you know, people around where you're going to have some false sense of humility, but in the quietness of your own heart. How wise do you think you are? I hope you recognize our need for growth. I hope you realize yourself in light of God's wisdom and humility that you should have, knowing that whatever advances you might have made in understanding life and understanding how to live the Christian life, all of that's been granted to you by God. Bottom of verse 13 and beginning of verse 14. He's going to contrast two kinds of wisdom, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And you see the contrast here in the middle of verse 13 and verse 14. He says, well, if there is wisdom and understanding, and you have some people that are that way, well, then that person, by his good conduct, should let him show his works. There's deeds, there's things that come, come out of that life in the meekness, right? And the gentleness, and the, the lowliness, and the humility of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, and those are the people in, in, in the early church that would be running the big websites and having the blogs and the Twitter accounts, I mean, they're, they're out there, but they're filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. He said, don't boast and be false to the truth. We don't advertise that as something godly. That's not wisdom. And, and we're going to get into that in more detail as the contrast begins. But if you're taking notes, jot this down. Number two, you need to evaluate the, the effect of your wisdom. Let's put that in quotes. Whatever wisdom you have, let's evaluate the effect of it. And then we'll work backwards and say whether that's biblical wisdom, godly wisdom, or whether that's just a reflection of the world's wisdom. Uh, it's all about us 
being honest and seeing not am I wise, but what has my wisdom accomplished? Uh, two things here, just to contrast these subpoints. Uh, does it leave behind peace? That good works in the meekness of wisdom, we're going to see that's the flavor and the tenor and tone of this whole passage. Uh, Proutus, it's a, a Greek word in this passage, the gentleness or the meekness, the courteousness, the humble, gentle, kind of unifying wisdom that the Bible is going to display throughout, and in this passage in particular, in verse 17, we need to see that that is what godly wisdom does. It brings in its wake, it has in its wake, a kind of behavior, a good conduct that leaves behind uh, a positive and good, peaceful effect. Turn to this one real quickly, Titus chapter 2. I'm sorry, Titus chapter 3, verse number 2. Titus chapter 3, verse number 2. Even if this one verse could just be, you know, emblazoned on your mind as the standard of what it looks like to be a wise person. And that's knowing that the Apostle Paul does not in any way shy away from being assertive about what is true. Uh, the gospel, God, Christ, who we are as sinners, our need for sanctification, all those things are, 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 are emphatic. Matter of fact, he tells Titus to preach with all authority and let no one disregard him. But this is not about the authority of reflecting true, clear, biblical principles. It's about even as Peter says in 2 Peter 3, the things that sometimes are difficult to understand or the debatable issues of Romans chapter 14, um, that we don't have this kind of contentious attitude with our knowledge and our information, that knowledge that puffs up according to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But he says here in verse 2, we should be, and this should be the kind of thing that you see happening, and this is the content that Titus is told to relay to his church. It says to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be, here's our word, gentle, and to show perfect courtesy, kindness, that, that humility, that, that gentleness, perfect courtesy toward all people. Read that again. To, to speak evil to, of no one, even right there should be massive conviction, right? To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, that is a remarkable, challenging passage, but I want you to look at the verse that's right in front of it because here's the immediate context. As Paul tells Titus, the pastor in Crete, um, I want you to talk to these people that are in a kind of a broad shoulder, you know, tough kind of the Bronx context, if you will, of the church in Crete, right? They're lazy gluttons, brutes, the things that you read about in chapter one. And he says, yeah, they need to be sharply rebuked for that. But in this tough you know, callous kind of culture. Uh, he says, when it comes to your preaching to those Christians in that culture, it says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. These were the non-Christian rulers and authorities, of course. To be obedient and ready for every good work, comma, here's our verse now, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I just want to ask you, when you think about how you're doing in evaluating your wisdom, the effect of your wisdom, what's in the wake of your life, what's left behind? Is it something that leaves peace behind? Is it something that this passage could be aptly, you know, uh, describing your life? Or perhaps it's like the next verse, verse 14. Maybe there's bitter jealousy left behind or selfish ambition. The, sh the elbows are up, as I like to say, and we're kind of getting our place in this and asserting ourselves in a way that has a kind of a, a, a 
horizontal lateral comparison that's taking place. Um, is, that, is, that, is that what's going on? I put it this way, letter B, does it leave behind contention? Does your wisdom in your life that you think you're so smart in that thing that you're doing, that thing that you're thinking, that, that assertion of your life, is that effect of your life on the world and on other people? Does it leave peace behind or does it leave contention behind? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I quoted this passage just briefly, at least that phrase, that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge is never seen in Scripture as something just to be had for intellectual entertainment, right? Knowledge is something where we fill our minds with information so that it might work itself out in life. As a matter of fact, wisdom could rightly be seen in many ways, a parallel to, if not a parallel, and overlapping to the word love. When I put my knowledge to work, it is for the good and benefit of other people, and it leaves behind peace, not contention. Um, Here's the verse, verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Did you find it? Verse 1. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols. Remember, this is a Corinthian problem. There's a lot of conflict and debate over that. And he's going to get into that and kind of how to navigate through that. But it starts with, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. That's in quotations because that we assume, at least grammatically, that we can't affirm this with you know certainty, but the idea of this being one of the things that people were saying in Corinth, right? All of us possess knowledge. We have knowledge, but this knowledge, right? if that's all you have, is you fight and clamor and you have contention and arguments and points and counterpoints, and it's all about trying to get your position out there. And when someone, you know, wins more followers or gets more people behind them or more likes on their posts, then it's like you're jealous about that. All of that, he says, all that knowledge, all it does is puff up. If you win that, which by the way, you will just put a pin in this reading of this verse for a second, you get that contentious website, that contentious person. I mean, people love that. They don't make movies usually about, you know, peace and tranquility. It's about war and violence and, and, and climbing to the top and asserting yourself. And the idea of a ministry, and I see so many of them, uh, that are good and godly ministries that hardly, you know, they hardly make much of an impact at all because people don't devour it. But you have that same intellect, that same mind utilized to create controversy and to attack people and to be contentious and to be edgy and all that. Well, then you're going to have a lot of hits. You're going to have a lot of followers. I see that all the time. I mean, people love that kind of thing. doesn't mean it's right. As a matter of fact, that is the the example that we see throughout Scripture of worldly wisdom. It causes this kind of quarreling and contention. Let's get back to this passage. It says, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It focuses on the object. It seeks to edify the person. And I'll read verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, right? If you really think you're wise and have understanding, he does not yet know as he ought to know because there's always a humility and a meekness to real genuine wisdom and understanding. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, right, he is known by God because God is love. It's sounding just like First John, right? We know we know God because we love, because God is love, and that is the picture of what my knowledge is there for. It's there to edify and to build up. It doesn't mean that we are in any way compromising or acquiescing on the truth of God's Word, but it does mean that there's lots of things, even the application of God's Word and the controversy in Corinth regarding food sacrifice to idols, and he says, stop it. That's what Romans 14 is all about. Stop it. 
Don't be contentious. Don't leave in your wake all of this jealousy, this rivalry, this anger, this hostility, this debate that comes in the wake of your life and your knowledge, because that's not knowledge in a biblical sense. That's not understanding in a scriptural sense. That's not wisdom in a godly sense. That just reflects the wisdom of the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. Paul's concern was that in Corinth, and we've hit on a lot of these things from Corinthians, if you're quick and deft, you get around to that text real quick. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. He says, I fear that perhaps when I come, of course, he's going to journey there to Corinth is his plan. He says, for I fear perhaps that when I come, I may find you not as I wish, not the way I want you to be. And he'd already said, I, I, I think I'm hearing statements about you being in conflict. Maybe we'll look there real quick in a minute in 1 Corinthians 3, but here, 2 Corinthians 12. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. I know you want me to come and pat you on the back that everything's cool and you're doing exactly what you ought to do, but you're not going to find me affirming you. You're going to find me correcting you. That perhaps there may be, and here's the things I don't want to see in Corinth, Paul says, when I come, because I'll have to correct it, quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Look at that list. I mean, just read it slowly. Look at it. That perhaps there may be, in the church of God, people that claim to be Christians, quarreling, jealous of one another, right? Usually it's about the followings that they have. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of... You know, I'm of Christ, the super godly people. All this quarreling, all this factionalism, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip. I said I'm going to read it slowly. Let me do that. Jealousy. That's where I stopped. Anger. <laughs> I, I'm going to compare and contrast this at the end of our passage in verse 18, but there is the real difference. How much hostility and anger is there driving a lot of your knowledge, right? If that's what it's all about, we, we've missed the point entirely. Hostility, slander. That's the way to make my point, right? To tear down the other person. Gossip, conceit, and what it leaves behind is disorder. And that's my whole point here under letter B. When I'm asking the question number two, evaluate the effect of your wisdom. Does it leave behind peace or does it leave behind contention? Are you just acting like the world? All right, let's get back to James. James chapter 3. Look at verse 14 to see this. Again, we've looked at 13 and 14, but I want to overlap here just a little bit. When I look at that bitter jealousy in verse 14 and selfish ambition, he says, if you got that, that's not wisdom, so stop boasting as though you're wise and have understanding. Don't boast about it and be false to the truth. It's not in keeping with what God told us. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This isn't God's wisdom. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. Because where there's jealousy and selfish ambition, where those exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Number three, I just want to be very clear about rejecting this kind of wisdom. Reject bitter and contentious, and again, put this in quotes, wisdom. Reject bitter and contentious wisdom. Right? We've kind of identified that that's what it'll be, but we need to see that that's not the case. That is not what it is. Verse 14, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That word bitter is the word he uses about a fresh, you know, does, does a source of water, can it produce fresh and salty or bitter water? Well, it can't do both. And the point of that sharpness of something you taste is not good, that bitter jealousy, it leaves that bad taste in your mouth. And that selfish ambition, if you have that, just stop with that. That, I put it this way, it needs to be, all the competitiveness of wisdom is false wisdom. There's never a competitiveness, not in the sense that you think about it 
as creating that quarrelsome, contentious kind of, of wake or, or effect in people's lives. So see that competitiveness is false wisdom. That that picture of wanting to, to advance, and more can be said, but let's move on. In the next verse, it says it's earthly and unspiritual. I want to take those two together. It's earthly, earthbound, and unspiritual. It doesn't think about either in the long term, the next life, beyond this life, and it doesn't think in terms of the depth of who we are even as people born again, caring about things that matter the most. As Paul said, I write this one down when it comes to the debates. Yeah, here it is in Romans chapter 14. Uh, when they were dealing with the debates in the church in Rome, he said in verses 17 through 19, this is Romans 14, 17 through 19, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, the, the kind of, of wisdom that is short-sighted, that's how I put it here, there's a competitive, you need to see the competitiveness of false wisdom, and you need to see the short-sightedness of false wisdom. We're, all, we're always looking at the surface stuff, and we're always looking at the surface stuff ending before the next life in eternity. It's short-sighted. And, and in this passage, in Romans chapter 14, he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of the eating and drinking, all these things that you're debating about, right? But of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so many applications applications to what we're dealing with now. You know, it's not about setup or services or times or programs. It's about these things, right, that, that the church has been able to express and to live out even in the most severe circumstances. Um, more could be said. But verse 17, the kingdom of God, not a matter of those things, of, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ, if you serve that way with that focus, with the spiritual in mind, not the unspiritual, then, then that is acceptable to God. And it's approved by men, men who, who have insight about real wisdom and understanding. So then, verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. I mean, you know, I'm not cherry picking these verses, right? These are just, this is just a consistent flavor of the New Testament. The godly are not producing short-sighted. It's about the here and now. It's about the temporal stuff. It's about stuff in the next three weeks, the next three years, or the next three decades. The kingdom of God is concerned with much bigger things than that. It's unspiritual. It's, um, it's earthly. It's earthbound. See the competitiveness of false wisdom? This is all under number three, right? We're rejecting that kind of bitter and contentious wisdom. We see it's competitive. We see it's short-sighted. And one more, let's take that word demonic, uh, let's just see that it's destructive, right? It's destructive. It, it's rebellious and destructive. The demons, I mean, they are the ultimate picture of rebellious people who know that at the end they're going to get locked up and they're going to be punished. They're going to receive the retribution for the rebellion. So all they're doing is, is making a mess. As the ship's going down, they care about just messing things up on the deck. And we talk about rearranging the, you know, the chairs on the sinking ship. This is the kind of short-sightedness that the demons have. It's not because they're dumb. It's because they recognize beyond this life, there's nothing else to do. They're just going to mess it up while, while they can. And it's a destructive, demonic, it's, it's adversarial before God, and it's adversarial for what God is trying to promote. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. It's been reported to me, Paul said that, that by Chloe's people, who had been messengers here, that there is quarreling among you. And then he starts to unpack that later in the book, chapter 6, verse 6. You've got people uh, so ingrained in conflict that they're going to other people to try and have this arbitrated, right? They're going to law against their brother. And they do that before unbelievers, these arbiters and mediators and these judicial magistrates. They were, they're non-Christians. He says, to have lawsuits, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 6, 7, at all with one another, it, all with, at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? 
Why not, as he says in Romans 14, give up eating meat forever, right? Drinking wine forever. Really, what is the deal? It should be about joy and righteousness and holiness in the spirit. These are the kinds of things that matter. That's what wisdom is about. Wisdom sees beyond the temporal experience of this life and and wisdom sees beyond the, 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 the earthly things here. It looks to the depths of the important things that go beyond surface practices. Um, you got to see that. I, well, I wish I could go further, but l- let me add another verse. As long as we're talking about wisdom here. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. Paul said in verse 20 to Timothy, this pastor in Ephesus, he says, Guard the deposit entrusted to you and avoid irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. The battle throughout Scripture is that you've got to see that some information in your mind that's debated through very slick rhetoric or some kind of persuasive presentation, that is not knowledge necessarily. It's not real biblical knowledge and understanding and certainly wisdom. It's not wisdom, right? Because it results in stuff like babble and contradictions. It's, it's, it's about what Jesus said uh, we should not see named among us. It's the thing that, that Paul said that leaders should not be known for, being the, the debaters and the fighters and the quarrelers. Uh, we had to learn to be able to even change the people around us without that quarrelsome. We had to be able to correct those in opposition with gentleness, to quote Paul again to Timothy. So, what did I call it? Reject bitter and contentious wisdom. Here's what we're supposed to pursue, okay? This is, this is the meat of it right here, verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, full of, good, full of mercy and full of good fruits, impartial and sincere. Right? And then verse 18, we'll read that in a minute. But that list right there really is a good place in your small groups and even in your devotional kind of processing this, ingesting this message and, and mulling this over. This is a great list for you to unpack. Um, I put it this way, the heading on this, number four, you need to pursue the peaceful wisdom of God. If we're rejecting and getting rid of in our lives this bitter and contentious wisdom, well, then the wisdom we're looking for is the peaceful wisdom of God. I know this is a bit redundant, but let's get into the details here. Letter A, I mean, just list them. This is not any ingenious unpacking or exposition of the text, but let's at least just put them down on your notes. It says it's first pure, right? Pure, it's, it's, it's holy. That's the root of this word. It, it does what is right. It's about doing the good thing. It's about being innocent of wrongdoing. And a lot of people will, even in the name of biblical knowledge and understanding, they will resort to things that are not biblically allowed. If the means and methods of you promoting what you think is biblical and right is unbiblical, then the means, right, are going to show that the way and the point and even what you're promoting, right, is, is, is flawed in some way. Uh, so it's got to be pure. It's got to be right. Secondly, it's got to be peaceable, which is really the echo of the whole tenor of this text. It's peaceful. It doesn't cause contention. It's not about quarreling. It's not about infighting. It, it, it pulls people together. It creates that harmonious relationship among the people of God. Letter C, third thing, it is gentle. Right? Jesus spoke of that. We'll talk about that in a second. But God is patient. He's kind. He's gentle in that sense. And, and we should be too. We've got to be tolerant. We've got to be accepting. Just as Paul called the Corinthians to act that way as they had differing opinions, and so Paul did 
not only to the Corinthians, but to the Romans, um, and even the Galatians, as he dealt with doctrinal error, still the point of them being unified and having that sense of peace is going to happen when they approach their uh, knowledge and express their knowledge with, with gentleness. Letter D, it's open to reason. <sighs> Flexible, right? Able to be persuaded, teachable, willing to change. Uh, not because of ad hominem arguments, uh, not because someone has more, you know, people that like their, their, their position, but because they are really open to say, God, teach me, try me, know my heart, let me grow, let me learn, uh, let me be ready to disavow things, maybe even the past that I've asserted because I, I'm growing, I'm open to reasonable persuasion. I mean, really open to that. And that's a great place to start. Would I change my position on whatever it is that I'm all hyped up, hopped up about? Would I change my position? Am I open to, to reason? Full of mercy, right? Even when I see that there's been some wrong done to me, am I vindictive, right? When there's been conflict, am I willing to uh, forgive and let it go? Or do I hold grudges? Um, mercy. Mercy is not giving people what all they deserve, what you might rightly think they deserve based on the conflict you've had. Letter F, it's full of good fruits. The outcome, as we've said, that wake of what's left behind, the wisdom in your life ought to be things that are good, they're right, they're wholesome, they're, they're biblical, they're appropriate. They're the kinds of things you'd want to see in the lives of your children or your uh, beloved friends. That Those are the things you want to see happen to even the casual acquaintance that you have a, a discussion with in the church of Christ and even outside the church. Full of good fruits. It's impartial. That means it's it's isn't just trying to win, not just trying to score. It's not just trying to make a point. It's principled. It's seeking to please God. It's not about partiality and saying I want to be counted with that group or those guys or this team because they seem to be the cool team. You know, it's about being truly impartial and saying I just want this to please God and sincere. Um, this is a negation. It's, a, it's not hypocritical. It's unhypocritical. It's not the kind that has a position out here in the open, in my mouth, in my teaching, but in my life, it's, it's not there. Uh, and in conflicts, that's so often the case is that there's a real, often virtue signaling for the sake of the principle and not a consistency and an honest adherence to whatever the position might be. That's a great list. It's from above, this is God's wisdom, it's not the earthly wisdom, it's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, full of good fruits, impartial, and sincere. Verse 18, it says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Um, that picture of God producing fruit as it's contrasted in the beginning of the book, matter of fact, let's go back to James chapter 1, uh, the means by which we try to sometimes advance what we think is right is motivated by the wrong things and therefore isn't the product of God's spirit and his work, it's the product of my persuasion and my heart and my, you know, whatever, the volume of my, of my argument. Um, he puts it this way in verse 19, James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Produce. It doesn't bring the fruit of the righteousness of God. Our passage says this whole section about wisdom is what does produce a harvest of righteousness. And it's about peaceable people. It's about 
people that are bringing that harmonious wake of good that comes in the train of what they do. It's, it's the effect that is brought because people are seeking to make peace and are peaceable people as opposed to anger. Um, and you can just compare those two. And you can know, as Galatians says, that the works of the flesh are evident and the works of the flesh are going to include anger, even as it says there in Galatians 5, the outburst of anger. And so we realize that one is of the flesh and that anger that motivates so much of the contention in the churches in Corinth, in Rome, and, and sadly sometimes at Compass Bible Church. It comes not from God's work. It's not coming from Him. It's coming from us. It's coming from our flesh. And therefore, it is a reflection of the world because, as Paul said to the Corinthians, you're just acting like the, the rest of the world, like mere people fighting and quarreling and debating and arguing. And those are the kinds of things that uh, are, are not the promotion or the outworking of, the product of, the harvest of the Spirit in our lives. I put it this way, and this is where how James started. We need to seek God's wisdom from God. Seek God's wisdom from God. And that may sound so painfully obvious, but think that through. How often we try to do this without knowing that there has to be an organic connection with God producing this in us. It's not a natural thing. The fruit of the Spirit is in contrast to the the, the outworkings of the flesh, right? The outworkings of the flesh, the works of the flesh, those are evident and they include the kind of anger and even, you know, uh, conflict. Actually, let's read that verse here. Galatians chapter 5. Um, now, the works of the flesh are, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, where we're used to seeing those things, right? Those are like the big poster sins of, of, of the world. But then it says, it's also things like, in verse 20, enmity. It's like, Things like strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. I mean, that's the list, exactly what we're dealing with in our passage here. Um, that's coming out of the flesh. Well, in the next passage, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, listen to these words. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mean... There's our list. That is a great example of the contrast of people that can quote Bible verses either with the flesh coming out. If you look at that, the, I mean, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions and divisions, or people that are making their case and seeking to provide something that produces things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't know. It, you look at enough of these passages and build this composite picture in Scripture of what does a wise person look like, and you realize the stark contrast. It just it couldn't be more evident. And yet we often hear a sermon like this one and think of someone else. And we don't let the Word of God be the mirror, as James 1 says, and, and see it being a reflection of me. We started with asking, am I a wise person? I want us to be wise in this sense. And to do that, we have to seek this wisdom from God. We need to, James chapter 1, um, verse, well, let me get the passage here. James chapter 1, verse 5, sorry. If any of you lacks wisdom, which of course, most people think they don't, they think they're wise in understanding, until you define what it is, and you think, oh man, I do lack that. And hopefully at this juncture in the sermon, you say, I, I, I need it. Well, then let him ask of God. Because God gives it generously to all without reproach. Proverbs chapter 9, right? It's God's trying to give it away. He's not guarding it in a fortress. It's here. Just have it. It's 
going to be counterintuitive. It's not going to be like the world. It's going to not allow you to vent the way that you would vent in a normal situation if you were a secular talk show host. No, you're a Christian. This is different. There's self-control involved. But the, the effect and the, the, the delivery, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, these are the kinds of things that come out through the person that is asking God to provide it. We think of that passage in Kings we read not too long ago in our daily Bible reading of uh, a request. I love the way it's put. The, the, and this request pleased the Lord, or it's quoted this way, uh, and it pleased the Lord that he had asked for this. Right? Solomon had asked for what? I need wisdom and understanding. I need to know how to govern these people. I need to know how to put things to work. I mean, God, obviously Solomon was already at that point clearly a bright person as a young leader, and yet he needed that wisdom to know how to apply, how to respond, how to put that knowledge to work. Because knowledge by itself make you proud. It'll puff you up. But real wisdom from God, love is going to edify people. All right. I mentioned the description of Christ being gentle. Uh, of course, he could tip over tables in the um, temple when there was an issue of egregious blasphemy going on, which is what was going on in these people turning the Temple Mount into a place of trying to make a buck. But he could say this with complete integrity because people could see this in his leadership and in his knowledge. He says this in Matthew eleven twenty nine and 30. He says, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Talk about that. I talk about a wake. I keep using that word, but like a boat, and it leaves that wake behind it, right? That picture of what, what does Christ leave behind? He leaves behind a, a, a restful, peaceful, harmonious uh, kind of, of effect from his ministry because in his own heart he is gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I hope that your effect is what it ought to be. And I just release you to that self-analyzation of going through a passage like this prayerfully thinking it through and asking God to have the kind of wisdom that uh, sadly is more rare than it ought to be, even in the Church of Christ, not only in the first century, but in the 21st century. So let me pray to that end right now. God, help our church. We seek to be wise men and women. Give us more wisdom in our church because you said you would give it if we ask. We want to submit ourselves to your spirit and the work of your spirit in our lives to be this in every way, particularly now at this particular junction in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.